G'day and welcome to episode 25 of The Other Side Australia, your weekly summary of the news and commentary of the week from a sensible centre-right perspective. Coming to you on the discernible platform, all the usual podcast platforms and the Good Source channel. This week, one of the greatest speeches I've ever heard on conservatism and classical liberalism has been delivered in the US. We have forgotten principles that we once held dear, and we must more closely articulate to the American people that we are the only ones who respect them as human beings, that we are the only ones who believe the American people have God-given rights. We are not here to tell you how to live your life, how to treat you like a child, or a criminal because you go to church or you defend yourself. Conservatives respect people as individuals. We don't divide people based on their religion, their culture, or the color of their skin. We don't shun people who think for themselves. And we understand that every single person is different. Each person, each person deserves the opportunity to build his or her life without some self-important government bureaucrat telling them what they can or what they can't do. That was Christy Nome, the governor, the equivalent of a premier, of the US state of South Dakota, speaking at this year's conservative CPAC conference in Florida this week. We'll have a large chunk of her speech for you at the end of this week's show, and you don't want to miss it. Also this week, Australia's Aged Care Commission's report calls for more socialism to fix the socialist failure. We analyze how Dan Andrews sold his people a lie. We explore the tale of a German DJ and global pop sensation BTS. Alexandra Marshall joins us to explain a link between China and Iran that Aussies really need to know about. And Donald Trump speaks. Do you miss me yet? Do you miss me yet? President Trump reveals whether he'll be setting up a new political party. All that and more of Governor Nome. Stay with us. Before we dive into it today, just a quick one. I'd just like to apologise for a mistake I made last week referring to the protest in Melbourne a couple of weekends ago as an anti-vax protest. It was not. It was an anti-coercion, anti-mandatory vaccine, pro-liberty protest. I did refer it to all of that at once stage, but uh, other times I abbreviated it to anti-vax, which was wrong. So I apologise to the organisers and participants for that. The police gave you hard enough time. You don't need me adding to it. The Royal Commission into Aged Care report came out this week after a couple of years of investigations. We used to have governments, of course, now we spend millions on royal commissions to tell government what to do so that pollies don't have to take responsibility for anything. The findings are simply that our system is a mess and it's badly failing older Aussies. I wonder what it costs to, for them to work that one out. I've got two 90-year-old parents in aged care. I could have told them that for free. The current system is semi-socialist with aged care prices capped but private sector management. Economically, that is the worst of both worlds, really. Get the private sector to run a business where the only way to make a profit is to cut costs because you can't charge more than the government allows. How it should work is that you let the free market set the price, let rich people drive up the quality of service and innovation by paying for that, and then supplementing that with government funding 
for those who can't afford the basic care. It isn't really rocket science. So what is the solution that the Royal Commission suggests to all of this failed socialism? You guessed it. More socialism. More tax and more government control. Hooray. Australians already pay too much tax for a resource-rich nation with only 26 million people. The oil-rich Middle East states have zero tax. But our bureaucrats are so good at wasting money on themselves that they've forgotten that there are priorities that they need to commit to first. Namely, looking after the elderly, our veterans, the disabled and the sick. I suggest no new tax and no new permanent commission. I suggest government looks within, shrinks itself, and redirects money from non-essential pet projects that they have no right to be engaging in to doing the tough and hard job that they're supposed to be focused on. Here's a good place to start. Spend less of our money telling us how to think and speak and policing that, and more on looking after our parents and grandparents. I know a self-indulgent national broadcaster that could be run for half of what it costs right now, and $600 million would be a good start to fixing aged care, don't you think? Well, the deals have been done, and the Dan Andrews government in Victoria will be able to shut down the state at a moment's notice anytime it likes without going to the parliament for approval under the changes that extend the state of emergency powers through to December. You can thank the Greens for that too. I repeat, you can thank the Greens. Without them, the law wouldn't have passed Victoria's upper house. You know, things are moving so fast with the COVID decisions and lockdowns and unlockdowns and border restrictions that I think it's important we stop and reflect now and again and do a bit of a reality check. I want to take you back to Friday the 12th of February when Victorian Premier Dan Andrews announced in Melbourne that he was going to lock down the entire state of Victoria for five days because of a cluster of just 19 COVID cases. Remember, a case just means someone has tested positive for COVID, not that they necessarily are experiencing any symptoms, let alone in hospital or intensive care even. All of these cases were connected to a quarantine case at the Holiday Inn Hotel at Melbourne Airport, which was first identified on February the 4th. On Friday the 12th morning, all of Melbourne was waiting to hear whether the Premier was going to go into a full lockdown. The Australian Open was underway and florists and restaurants battered by the state's 2020 lockdowns were wondering whether tens of millions of dollars worth of fresh fruit and flowers would have to be wasted ahead of the Valentine's Day and Chinese New Year weekend, simply tossed out along with their best hope of business recovery. And they waited. And they waited. Until finally, at 1pm, the Emperor appeared. In some ways, Dan Andrews is a master communicator. He's good at acting the role of the ordinary, reasonable Aussie bloke. He knows how to sound and look reasonable. He also knows how to frame things to make them sound very fair and sensible. The problem is that he manipulates reality. Now, some might call this lying in order to frame things in a way that gets the outcome he wants. That's why it's so important that we back up and reflect every now and again, and that those of us who don't live in Victoria understand what is going on in our country. 
Victorians will be well familiar with the term UK strain, UK variant of concern. We have talked about this for a long time because it is so hyper-infectious and moves so fast that it is presenting a very, very real challenge to our status, our stay safe, stay open, our precious thing that we've built, all of us, throughout 2020. Now, whilst we don't have cases outside those that were notified as possible close contacts, those who had been by virtue of who they'd been with or where they had been, whilst it's not surprising that we're seeing extra cases within those groups, and in some respects, it's pleasing that that's where those cases are, the way in which they are presenting is a very significant concern to us. If I can just give you a couple of examples, I'll make the point this way. We are having cases test positive, and we, in rapid time, we get notified of that positive test result. By the time we find that case as positive, they've already infected their close contacts, their family, people they live with, people they've spent time with. That makes it incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult to do contact tracing because there is no gap, if you like, between when we have the first case and their close contacts and potentially others that they have spent time with. The whole process, because of the hyper-infectivity and the speed at which this UK variant moves, the whole process has been condensed down and it is now, uh, I am sad to have to report, it is the advice to me that we must assume that there are further cases in the community than we have positive results for, and that it is moving at a velocity that has not been seen anywhere in our country. Now that is a good, scary setup if you're about to tell your state that they have to lock down. If they can't contact trace faster than an infection spreads and it's moving at this incredible velocity and there are possibly heaps more people already infected, well, we'd better shut down. The only problem is it wasn't based on facts or science. Janet Elbrickson wrote in The Australian that the politics of fear has no room for facts that allay fears. According to Public Health England, people who know what they're talking about on this, a person with the original Wuhan strain of COVID is likely to pass it to 11% of the people they come in contact with. A person with the UK strain will pass it on to 14.7% of the people they come in contact with. So the hyper-infectivity framing used by Andrews to justify his short, sharp lockdown was simply misleading. But just in case they were still not scared enough to accept the lockdown yet, Dan had this warning to terrify Victorians into compliance. The challenge that I have and the challenge that all of us will have to confront is that if we wait for this theory that it might be out there, there might be more cases than we know about, if we wait for that to be proven correct, it will be too late. And then we will face the prospect of being locked down until a vaccination is rolled out. A vaccine is rolled out to vulnerable people, to a very large number of Victorians, a significant percentage of the Victorian community. That's months. That's not days or weeks, that's months. So now are you ready? Who wants to have to be locked down for months? Never mind that it's highly debatable whether that would be necessary or even effective. Dan now has his audience emotionally right where he needs them to accept the big announcement as reasonable 
and necessary. And so now he lets the bombshell drop. Take it away, Laurence Olivier. So, because this is so infectious and is moving so fast, we need a circuit breaker. Therefore, I'm announcing on advice from the Chief Health Officer and after a meeting of relevant cabinet committees and the full cabinet, that from 11.59pm tonight, Victoria, all of Victoria, uh, will go to stage four. Stage four is very serious, liberty-destroying stuff. There will only be four reasons to leave your home. Shopping for necessary goods and services, when you need those things and only what you need. Victorians are well acquainted with this. We've done this before. People, Victorians know what to do. And they know that these tactics, this type of response works. But I will just for completeness sake, take you through the list as it stands now. Then I'm gonna ask Brett to speak to the hyper infectivity and the speed with which this UK variant is moving. Shopping for what you need, when you need it. Let's stop it there. We are all becoming way too used to politicians telling us when we can and cannot go outside our own homes. When we can go to work, feed our kids, go shopping, exercise or travel beyond five kilometres. We are failing to appreciate the seriousness of this kind of restriction of fundamental rights. Why? Because we've become so used to it. This is stuff that should only ever be done in the most extreme of national crises. Not when you have a handful of people testing positive to a virus that only one in every 700 people under the age of 65 who get it worldwide dies. He shut down the entire state. Why? Why should anyone in country Victoria have to be deprived of their fundamental liberty? And what right does a two-bit state leader and a gang of bureaucrats in Melbourne have to decree all of that? Even the lockdown of all of Melbourne was in no way proportional to the threat. The hyper-lightspeed nature of the UK strain was a lie. But still, Victorians think Dan is doing a good job. Still, they buy the spin and the manipulation. Victoria, when are you going to understand how you're being played here? It's like you're that friend in a dysfunctional relationship that just can't see how they're being manipulated. Oh, but, but he loves me. He, he let me go outside today. Mr. Reasonable is telling porkies. But why is he doing all this? Well, Peter Credlin had this analysis on Sky News. Millions of people's plans shattered. Thousands of businesses massively out of pocket because Daniel Andrews panicked that he'd be out of a job if his rickety contact tracing turned out to be as dodgy and as inept as his hotel quarantine. Credlin also questioned why the Prime Minister seems to love Dan so very much and why a compensation package for Victorian business has been so slow in coming from the state government. He sits there drawing a full salary, yet nothing yet on compensation. Nothing. He can lock down the state in a heartbeat, can't he? But a compensation package, well, says this clown today, that he can't rush. Honestly, this government should be gone. It should have resigned in shame and Victoria's governor should be sending us all to the polls. But because of a weak public service, a still largely fawning media in Victoria, a muzzled opposition, 
and an intimidated Labor caucus who can pick up the phone to me, but I can't roll this bloke that they need to, Andrews is still in charge. From the Prime Minister down, people seem overawed by this bloke's bullying arrogance. As for the Victorian public, well, I reckon they're no longer fooled no matter how often Daniel Andrews tells us how good he is. Well, Fig Jam Dan, you are a joke. That was Peter Credlin on Sky News back on February 17. Now, while Dan is a master of playing the reasonable guy and spinning the lie that the February 12 lockdown was so necessary, it's important we look back also at his performance at a press conference on February 16. The reasonable guy becomes very unreasonable very quickly should anyone dare to question him. I've said before on this show that the Victorian political press gallery are the weakest I've ever seen in terms of holding a leader to account, with a few notable exceptions like the Australian's Rachel Baxendale. But it took a national journalist, like the ABC's 7.30 report host Lee Sales, to show the state press gallery kids how the job is actually done. Many Aussies outside Victoria have probably not seen a lot of this exchange, but I think it's important that you do. Premier, what do you say today to Victorians who, after 111 days of uh, lockdown last year, might be asking, how is it the case that their government still lacks such confidence in your hotel quarantine systems and your contact tracing, that you apparently can't manage two to three cases of COVID a day in a population of about 6.3 million people? Well, you've made a number of assertions there. and Well, they're all facts, actually. Well, no, they're not. You've just put it to me that there's a lack of confidence. Absolutely, I'm more than confident in the team we have and in the Victorian community well, that, you, that you they can get through this. So with the greatest of respect, you have put a number of things to me that are not accurate. But the data premier that we were just provided with showed that they were contacts of contacts. They were really well identified. And well, not, not all of them, actually. Uh, were, some of them have come into scope. They've been well identified and pinned down. Your hospitals aren't in any danger of being overwhelmed. It's a small number of cases. That all suggests that your system is actually working pretty well to contain it. So why the need for lockdown? Well, th well, that's a very different question to the one that you asked at the beginning, where you contended that there were all sorts of confidence issues. So are you going to put the state into a five-day lockdown every time you have two or three new cases a day? We'll look at every positive case on its uh, merits. We'll look at every positive case on its merits. What does that even mean? Is he saying that he'll make it up as he goes along? Can't there be at least some clear guidelines that the community can debate and agree upon in advance so we have some benchmarks, so businesses and people can manage their lives and plan just a little bit and know what to expect? This is the second year of this pandemic. You don't get to just say, oh, we'll have to wait and see anymore. 6.5 million people can't wait upon your day-to-day -day judgment, Your Majesty. Would these politicians and bureaucrats act any differently if we tied their livelihoods to lockdowns? If snap lockdowns are going to continue to be a tool and an option for a small number of cases, how can Victorian businesses make any regular planning, let alone investment planning? Well, again, I'm not accepting, and I think it's just wrong to say that they're they're a tool for a small number of cases as, as such. You use they're the term a, small number of cases yeah, before yourself. But they're a tool, yeah, and also I think about 14 times made the point, Lee, that every case on its merits. So I think we, just, we sort of get... Anyway, uh, I'm putting it to you that we will always reserve the right 
to look at individual cases and to follow the advice that is given to us. Uh, and I just don't think you want, you, you wouldn't want it any other way. Because the notion, you know, let's just go back to first principles here. Uh, if, I, if, if I'm, you know, would you really want me to be shopping around for the best advice? The most politically uh, popular advice. No, what Would I'm you really want me to say, "Oh, well, gee, that'll be that'll be incredibly hard"? And I'm not doubting that for a moment. How hard it is, I'm not prepared to do that. Not at all, Premier. I'm just what what I'm trying to get to is it obviously, as you would agree, lockdowns impose a real cost on the community. Victorians have already paid a really high price because of the long lockdown last yes. year. Your own team just made it clear that the cases are actually very well traced, managed and contained. Yes. So why have you needed to resort to the harsh measure of a lockdown? The types of cases, this UK strain, the fact that uh, despite uh, the, the amazing efforts of all of our contact tracers and testers and path lab workers and the, the, the work of so many uh, genuine hard-working Victorians, we were getting us, we, were, we had a situation where at the same time as we're becoming aware of the primary case, they've already infected their close contacts. That's not something we've seen before. That, that, the speed at which this has moved uh, saw our public health team uh, make the very difficult decisions based on the best of science and the best understanding you can possibly have of any outbreak that this was a difficult but a proportionate and necessary thing to do. Except it wasn't. The aftermath has borne that out. They only found another five positives linked to the Holiday Inn strain. So what happened to the hyper-infectious strain moving at incredible velocity? It didn't eventuate, because it was all a massive lie. If we get another poll, like the February 4 Roy Morgan survey that showed 60% of Victorians want the state of emergency to continue through to December, or their November poll that put Andrew's approval rating at up 12% to 71%, then my faith in Victorians, which was high once, will now be shattered. Stop letting your government play you like a fiddle. You're watching and listening to The Other Side Australia with Damien Curry, your weekly summary of Australia's best news and commentary of the week from a sensible centre-right perspective. We come out every Wednesday night for Thursday morning around about 7pm, 8pm Wednesday nights. We're part of the Discernible Media Group. That's Discernable with an A-B-L-E and you can find us at discernible.io. Also, we're on YouTube, Facebook, all good podcast platforms and the good source Australian news and commentary platform too. Lots more to come on the show this week, so please stay with us. Coming up, Alexandra Marshall will join me to discuss the link between China and Iran. Donald Trump reveals whether he'll be setting up a new political party. And we'll share a big chunk of the amazing speech at the US CPAC conference this week from South Dakota governor and possible future president, I reckon, Christy Nome, a name you won't want to forget. South Dakota has been an example to the nation this past year. People used personal responsibility to protect their family's health and their way of life, while the government respected their rights and their freedom. Imagine that, Dan Andrews, Anastasia Palaszczuk, Mark McGowan, Scott Morrison. Are you paying attention? Of course not. Well, even the people of Victoria are not nearly as mesmerised by the we'll keep you safe mantra as the people of Western Australia are. 
They have Mark McGowan, their Premier, on a pedestal coming into next month's state election. This month's state election, I should say, despite his massive overreactions and border closures. And Queensland, my home state, went full overkill. They only welcomed people who'd been in Melbourne after February 7 back into Queensland just this past Saturday. What right do these people have? New South Wales says you can come to our state if you've been in Melbourne, just isolate for five days. But Queensland's like, no, you can't come home. You can't see your family. You can't attend a funeral. You can't attend a wedding or see your dying loved ones, get medical treatments, do any business meetings, etc., etc. Enough. This really has gone on for long enough. We need the Prime Minister to pull the country together. This is the last week that I'll restrain my criticism of this Prime Minister. We need Federal Parliament to pass legislation that secures our right to move freely between states unless there is a seriously grave risk to public health. There are ways to do this constitutionally. No border shutdowns by premiers and their chief health officers because they feel like it or because they just don't want to take any risks at all or because citizens are scared out of their wits because of what they've been telling them or because it plays well politically for the latest bunch of clowns in charge. It's time we all realise that state leaders in all parties are really just mid-level bureaucrats. Some of them have some pretty ordinary CVs. I could see them struggle to get a job above middle management in the private sector. We need the grown-ups, our national government, to step in. This country is losing the plot. And I think people are starting to wake up to it. I really hope they are. There's some very serious stuff going on in our country right now that could set extremely dangerous precedents in our legal system that would overturn centuries-old legal principles such as due process, rules of evidence, and the presumption of innocence. It all centers around 33-year-old rape allegations against this country's highest law officer, our Attorney General, Christian Porter, an elected member of Parliament and of Scott Morrison's cabinet. A letter was sent to a number of Green and Labour politicians, as well as to Scott Morrison, from an anonymous source claiming that in 1988, Porter raped a woman who was destined for greatness in her political career, and that this trauma led her to a life of mental illness and ultimately suicide mid-last year. If true, it's a horrible story. But that's the problem. Is it true? So I just wanted to start by saying something to the parents who are grieving for the loss of their adult daughter. I only knew your daughter for the briefest periods uh, at debating competitions when we were teenagers about 33 years ago. I was 17 years old and I think that she was 16 years old. And in losing that person, your daughter, you've suffered a terrible loss. And you did not deserve the frenzied politicisation of the circumstances of your daughter's death of the past week. And I have thought long and hard about the implications for you of what I feel that I need to say today. And I hope that whatever else happens, from this point, 
that you will understand that in saying today that the things that are being claimed to have happened did not happen, that I do not mean to impose anything more upon your grief. But I hope that you will also understand that because what is being alleged did not happen, I must say so publicly. The letter said that the parents of the woman didn't support her pursuit of the rape allegations. They worried that she may have confected or embellished the allegations due to her mental illness, it said. The letter also said that friends of the woman disagreed with the parents. The woman herself, however, contacted New South Wales police hours before her death, saying she didn't want the investigation continued. This is troubling because it looks far more like politically motivated attack than a genuine claim of rape. And there's now maybe some tit-for-tat going on. Liberal Senator Sarah Henderson this week told the Senate that she received an email about an historical rape allegation involving a senior Labor MP. This second case was investigated by police and there was found to be no case to answer. Back in 2014, Labor leader Bill Shorten then broke his silence about rape allegations against him dating back to the 1980s, after Victorian police told him there was no case and no charges to be laid. Shorten revealed he was the senior Labor figure in those allegations, saying there is absolutely no basis to the claims. So does this and the recent Brittany Higgins case mean, as the ABC keeps suggesting, that there is a systemic problem of sexual assault in our political culture? I do not think so. But we do have a trend in this country of politicization of sexual assault and trial by media when it comes to sexual assault cases involving accusations against public figures. It does seem that there are some troubling spot incidents happening in Canberra. Now, maybe it's because they fly in from all over the country for several weeks a year and they're all working and partying around the clock while there. The problem, if you ask me, isn't the sexual culture. It's the excessive boozing. Most of this could be fixed, if they really wanted to, by banning booze from the house and requiring people working during parliamentary sitting periods to be breathalyzed before work every day. I mean, it happens to people who have to steer vehicles at work. Why can't it happen to the people who are supposed to be steering the whole country? Not hitting the bottle at the taxpayer's expense every day. Now, I'm talking about sexual harassment there, and there's a tendency for that to occur perhaps a little too much within Parliament House at Canberra. But let's get back to the more hideous crime of rape. As a dad of two daughters, I can tell all you virtue-signalling third-wave uber-feminists that there is something you do not understand about fathers. You slammed ScoMo for saying he shouldn't need to be told by his wife to think about his daughters when dealing with a rape allegation against one of his staff. He should know rape is bad. Yes, true, he should. But I think he does. I think 99.999% of men know rape is bad. ScoMo's comment was cringy, goofy, and his point was maybe badly made. But the reason the Wokarati don't understand what he was trying to say is maybe because you're not fathers. So let me mansplain something to you for a moment. There are two genders, or at least there are two main genders. They are equal, but they are different. 
And through thousands of years of history, there have been certain roles that women played and certain roles that men have played traditionally. That doesn't mean they have to be bound by those roles today. But thousands of years of evolution and convention doesn't just magically disappear because it upsets your 25-year-old gender studies lecturer at uni in the 21st century. So let me tell you about the fathers of girls. You know how mothers can lift a car off their child in a moment of protection and super strength? They begin nesting automatically before birth. They can sense when their baby's in distress, even if asleep. All that maternal instinct stuff. Well, fathers have some pretty deep instinctual stuff going on too. We're protectors. And the instinct of fathers of rape victims is to want to kill the offender. There's probably a biological God-given reason for that. It's visceral and deep and not something I can explain the intensity of to someone who's not a father of girls. And I think that is what ScoMo was trying to allude to, I think. But heaven forbid men should have any good traits. That'd, be, that'd just be toxic masculinity to you lot, wouldn't it? Now, with all the woke humans screaming for new laws and inquiries and more and more government intervention in how people interact, think and speak, you could be forgiven for not knowing that rape is already a serious crime in Australia. In the state of Victoria, as an example, around 45 people each year are convicted of rape, and except in very rare and unusual cases, all of them go to jail. The average sentence time is around nine years, and they're doing the time. The average non-parole period is six years, and most do more than that. Since 2018, judges in Victoria are forced to consider the statutory standard sentence when sentencing rapists to prison, which in the case of rape in that state is set at 10 years now. In Queensland, the maximum sentence for rape is life. Now, I think all that's a bit lenient because I'm a dad. And yes, that does make a difference. No apology for that. I think a proven case of premeditated, fully intentional rape should cop a penalty of at least 20 years to life. But our legal system isn't based on emotional reactions. Rape is a category one offence, which means we need to be damn sure the accused is guilty before convicting and punishing them. And this is where it gets hard. It's a tough crime to prove. But unfortunately, that does not mean that we get to throw all our legal principles out the door in place of mob rule. We used to have a thing in Australia called the presumption of innocence and the right to a fair trial. We also used to have a thing called proving a crime beyond reasonable doubt, based on the principle that it's better a hundred guilty people go free than one innocent person is wrongly convicted. Pop author and Four Corners Queen Bee of Witch Hunts Against Men, Louise Milligan, and her ABC mates don't seem to give a rat's about those crucial legal principles. Their pathetically childish moral outrage and arrogance leads them to shout down anyone who suggests that the due process of law should be followed. If you dare to say, hey, look, I'm no fan of Cardinal Pell, but is it possible maybe, just maybe, that he uh, couldn't have done all of that in just a few minutes? Well, you must be some kind of wicked defender of child sexual abuse. This is a bloody dangerous state of affairs, and it explains why the woke mob are so dangerous. So let's review Milligan's big story this week. It says that the letter was forwarded to the Federal Police Commissioner Reese Kershaw by Labor's leader in the Senate, Penny Wong, and Greens Senator Hanson Young, who were also recipients of the letter. Last year, New South Wales Police Force set up Strike Force Windara, 
after the woman reported in Sydney in February 2020 to detectives from the New South Wales Police Child Abuse and Sex Crime Squad that she had been raped by the man in 1988. The woman had engaged a lawyer and told many friends about the allegation, but she sadly took her own life in June last year, so the strike force never got going. Friends of the woman, who had years earlier been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, say her mental health deteriorated in the weeks before she took her life. She had made previous suicide attempts. Okay, it's a tragic, tragic story. And it'd be nice to be able to blame someone for all the pain and suffering that this poor woman obviously went through. But, as the evil conservative commentator Andrew Bolt wrote in the Herald Sun and Daily Telegraph this week, quote, We're talking about an alleged rape 33 years ago, with police notified only last year. We're also talking about a woman who battled severe mental issues and is no longer alive to be questioned about her claims. And we're talking now about a complaint sent anonymously to natural enemies of the Morrison government. Labour, the Greens, Milligan and Malcolm Turnbull. He also got sent a letter. Again, I say it's all horrible. But like the rape claims against Shorten, they have to be ignored if they can't be proved. Rape is a serious offence with huge penalties. We cannot throw out due legal process just because we'd like to. And we can't destroy men's reputations without good evidence, especially when they work in politics and have plenty of natural enemies who might want to lie about them. Does Louise Milligan need her husband to remind her to imagine if one of her sons was falsely accused of a rape or crime they didn't commit? Surely she shouldn't need prompting from her spouse to be reminded of the importance of due legal process. As if all this isn't bad enough, enter Malcolm Turnbull. Imagine being so politically maligned and bitter that you'd take a tragic story like this and make a veiled suggestion that the woman involved had not committed suicide, but had in fact been murdered to shut her up. You know, House of Cards style. That was the clear and bizarre implication to anyone with half a brain of Malcolm Turnbull's comments in an interview with the ABC radio this week. What an extraordinary claim for anyone to make, let alone a former Prime Minister of our country. If that alone is found out to be false, Turnbull should suffer the highest public condemnation for his comments and he should most certainly be turfed from the Liberal Party. As Paul Kelly from the Australian newspaper put it in an editorial, this is trial by media and public opinion dressed up as public interest. Well, as you know, we spend a lot of time on this show trying to dispel the culture of wokeism. In simple terms, wokeism is an irrational way of viewing the world in which everything is perceived through a lens that is actively seeking to find sexism, racism, or some kind of ism or prejudice behind every single social problem. It works like this. Let's say there's one horrible incident of racist violence or something that happens somewhere. The news gets reported, then amplified through the media and social discussion. The woke crowd would quickly turn the discussion from that one case of bad behaviour into a systemic social problem that needs a big government intervention, like systemic racism. Wokeism's real name is critical theory, 
or cultural Marxism, but a lot of people just call it postmodernism or neo-Marxism. It's an ideology mainly of the political left. It's all over our university social science courses, and it ultimately seeks to divide society into angry tribes in order to cause its demise. Classic divide and conquer. Fuel internal divisions to destroy your enemy. Now, some cultural Marxists want to bring down the entire system of our country and start again with a government of Marxists, no doubt, who will make everything fair by controlling the means of production and distributing all the wealth fairly. Sounds nice, but a big experiment in the 20th century found it doesn't work, and we ended up with governments murdering 100 million of their own people, all while trying to make life fair. It seems life isn't fair. Who knew? Other cultural Marxists are happy just to have more power within the existing system. They infiltrate the public service, left-wing political parties, the universities, the media, and corporations through woke HR departments full of people brainwashed on this stuff at uni. And they change the culture, nice and slowly, bit by tiny, reasonable bit. You see, most of their followers don't even know they've been manipulated because cultural Marxists do their thing by making lots of tiny, small changes over time. And a lot of what they change on a small level seems fair and reasonable at the time especially if they leverage highly emotional cases of actual sexism, racism, abuse, or assault. Australia, like much of the Western world right now, is in the grip of a cultural attack by this neo-Marxism. This isn't happening by accident, and it's not a kooky conspiracy theory to think there's some outside forces involved in pushing it. No, not lizard people or Martians. Just good old-fashioned communist governments. He really does look like Winnie the Pooh. It's uncanny. Victoria's public service, for example, is already way down the rabbit hole. You can tell when the government starts wanting to make criminal offences not just out of what people do, but what people say and think and might do one day. Remember this? What on earth? Excuse me, what What on earth? Yeah, just put your phone down. Can you like, record this? I'm in my pyjamas. What's I this? Ultrasound in an hour yeah, pregnant. she's pregnant, so... Well, I'm taking it easy. What's Simulation this about? Can I have an ultrasound just let me finish. in an hour? Let me finish and I'll explain. It's in relation to a Facebook post, in relation to a lockdown protest you put on for Saturday. Yeah, and I wasn't breaking any laws by doing you that. You are actually. You are breaking all. That's why I'm arresting you in relation to in front How of can my you children, arrest her? That's. In front of my two children. Can't you just say to her, take the post down? Like, come I mean, on. I'm happy Otherwise, to delete the post. This is ridiculous. Yeah. But I have to give you these caution and rights. You know? you know, pandemics are great for cultural Marxists to jump on. They create an environment of heightened fear, they require people to act collectively for the public good and justify putting individual rights aside for a while, just until we flatten the curve. Well, now until we eliminate the virus, or maybe whatever. And this show is part of the new cultural movement in Australia that's pushing back on wokeism. But the problem with pushing back on wokeism is that the woke will then accuse you of racism or sexism or victim blaming or shaming or whatever. They've got a million tricks up their sleeve. You can't win. The other problem with being anti-woke like this show is that 
actual racists and sexist people will think you're championing their cause. So let me be very clear. I don't believe that Western liberal democracies are hotbeds of systemic racism. In fact, I believe strongly that Western liberalism may be the least racist culture the world has ever known. But there are racists among us, real, actual neo-Nazi types. And that is not okay. This week, a German disc jockey made revolting comments about the Korean pop group BTS. If you haven't heard about BTS yet, you soon will. They're the biggest band in the world at the moment, and you may be familiar with this song. They may be not getting a lot of airplay in Australia for their other music because most of their other stuff is in Korean. But radio people who are stuck in the dark ages don't matter to BTS's audience because their audience is massive and it's all online. To call BTS a boy band is to only know them at face value. These guys are true artists. They write really good meaningful lyrics. They dance in millisecond synchronicity after hours of practice and training. They're styled to within an inch of their lives by the world's best makeup and fashion artists. And they sing harmonies that would make the Jacksons weep. And they're kind, clean-cut, nice, humble guys as well. The American music industry doesn't know what's hit it. Who knew that you don't have to resort to pornographic music videos to sell 20 million albums and get 4 billion YouTube views? I wish someone would please tell Cardi B. Macaroni in a pot, that's some wet and Oh God, make it stop. Just make it stop. Anyway, back to BTS and the German DJ. BTS did an MTV Unplugged session this week. It was really good. And they covered the beautiful Coldplay classic, Fix You. you Yes, that one. Chris Martin and the band tweeted in Korean characters that BTS's version of their song was beautiful. But despite Coldplay's endorsement, one German radio DJ wasn't impressed, which is totally his right. He told his listeners on one of Germany's biggest radio stations that the group's version of the song was blasphemy and the BTS were, quote, some crappy virus that hopefully there will be a vaccine for soon as well. Now that is actual racism. He's implying that because these guys are Asian... They're not even Chinese, they're Korean, you idiot. That they are somehow like COVID-19. Charming. That'd be like me calling the German DJ a Nazi just because he's German. Or more like calling an Irish DJ a Nazi because he's white like a German. It's ignorance on a level that is beyond stupid. And this is the problem. Ignorance. If you don't understand Asia, for God's sake, buy a map and study it for an hour. Read up on the politics. It's as diverse a region as you could ever get. There are some people who believe that COVID originated in a lab in Wuhan that was experimenting with coronavirus mutations. That lab was partly funded by the United States, by the way. 
An international team of scientists led by the World Health Organization announced this month that the coronavirus most likely originated in animals before spreading to humans, and they dismissed the theory that the disease had been accidentally or deliberately leaked from that Wuhan lab. Whatever. I mean, if you want to blame the Chinese communist government, go right ahead. But if you're hurling abuse or yelling at the Chinese people who live in Australia, then you're a racist. Most of them are not from communist China. And even if they are, with the exception of a few uni students still studying, they probably don't like the government much and that's why they left and came here. If you're getting mad at Asian people generally, even those who aren't Chinese, then you're on a whole new level. You're a racist too, and a bit of an idiot to boot. Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, South Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, Thailand, Laos, Burma, Cambodia, the Philippines, Indonesia, and Malaysia are not friends of commie China. Some of them are sworn enemies. Now look, I know the Aussie school system is utterly the pits at teaching this stuff, so it's not our fault that we don't know. I knew very little about Asia before I lived there. So please, do get onto Wikipedia, learn a bit about Asia and its politics and recent history. The commies are very well educated about this region. And to beat them, we're going to need to be even better educated. A pretty complicated but important story for Australians to understand has popped up this week involving Iran, Pakistan, China and the US. You won't hear about this on the mainstream media mostly because they'll consider it too hard for you to understand. Too hard for them to explain is more like it. Joe Biden has decided to consider lifting sanctions on Iran. So a bit of background. The Obama-Biden administration signed the US-Iran nuclear deal in 2015. That deal essentially involved the lifting of sanctions in the hope that Iran would cut back its nuclear program. Donald Trump hated the deal. He thought it was very lopsided in Iran's favour, basically paying them money not to make nuclear weapons. So he abandoned it in 2018, and sanctions were reimposed on Iran as part of a new strategy of maximum pressure. Our regular on the show, Alexandra Marshall, who many of you know as at Ellie Melly on Twitter, has put together an interesting article for The Spectator Australia magazine. In it, she argues that President Biden's move has less to do with doing Iran a favour and more to do with doing China a favour. Ellie joins me now. Ellie, this is uh, pretty complicated stuff, so let's try and make it nice and simple. It, it all involves a gas pipeline that runs from Pakistan to Iran and which is paid for by China as part of its Belt and Road Initiative. And the pipeline's development got stopped when Trump brought the sanctions back in in 2018. China wants to get it up and running again. And this is because it's a, a very strategically important pipeline for China um, because it, it feeds into China's um, major projects at home, right? That pipeline then connects back up into the rest of China's major infrastructure projects. Now, what it does is it bypasses a strategic problem for China, which is when their energy and oil shipments can be stopped um, in the South China Sea. And so in order to bypass a problem that they've got, they need this pipeline to work. Now, what happened was when the US imposed sanctions on Iran, specifically Tehran, 
they could no longer complete the work on the Pakistan cyber infrastructure project. That is a huge problem for Xi Jinping. Now, it doesn't make much sense to uh, release sanctions on Iran itself, but it does make sense for Biden to do China a favor as far as their infrastructure projects are concerned, uh, not in the least because a fair few American companies are partners with the Chinese infrastructure giants. So you just mentioned that there's this, 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 this I think it's the Strait of Malacca, right, that goes, it's under uh, Malaysia. And if, if that's blocked, then um, they can't, they can't uh, get any energy in. So it's very, very strategically important for China from a military perspective to, to have this pipeline built so that they've always got an energy supply. Is that right? When you're dealing with China, you have to remember that they're always thinking from the military perspective and the projects in the Belt and Road Initiative are predominantly strategic military assets, even if they're sold as green energy viability or some kind of upgrade to a poor nation, it's always in favour of a strategic asset for China. And the Malkata problem is a serious um, naval issue that China has always had, specifically because America has a presence in the Pacific. And so this uh, removes that problem from China. So in the event there is conflict breaking out in the Pacific region, China will now have an overland uh, solution to their energy crisis. And so it's sold under the idea, well, Pakistan will have more energy and we can sell it to our, our poorer, friendly nations. But in reality, China's just ensured itself energy security overland from Iran. Yeah, I mean, they're not giving money away for nothing, right? I mean, this is this, the Belt and Road Initiative, These funding the funding of projects, um, whether it's sort of, you know, private sector partnerships or whether it's um, just going into governments and saying, look, you know, let us let us do this and we'll pay for it, which seems to be what they're doing in a lot of cases. Um, it's all tied back to, you know, having that control and, and giving them more military and geographically strategic strength so that they can become the one world superpower at some point. So it's called India Caged by China's Belts and Roads, and it examines the infrastructure projects that are going on around India, which are either empowering and arming India's closest unstable nations like Pakistan, like Bangladesh, or the projects like the hydroelectric schemes, which India has placed, not India, which China has placed in Tibet, which cut off the major river systems of Asia, including rivers down into India, and also rivers that flow down into um, the Southern Asian uh, partners, which China can and has cut off water supply to these people. And so if India decides that they don't like what China's up to or launches a military effort to help Australia in a Pacific dispute, China can quite literally cut off the major water supply to India, which would cause their country to starve almost immediately. And this kind of pressure that the Belts and Roads are putting on India is not being discussed as a military problem, which, of course, that is the primary function. It's not to create energy for China. It's to control its neighbours and to keep a handle on the largest superpower in the region, aside from Russia, which is, of course, China, uh, of course, India. Yeah, it's really uh, quite scary stuff. And China takes a very long view on these things. So they'd be quite happy for this to take 20, 30, 40, 50 years, just so long as it all falls into place for them uh, eventually. So what, we sh what should we be doing about all of this, Ellie? From an Australian perspective, there's not really much we can do, I guess, except lobby, lobby the United States, keep an eye on Joe Biden. 
Well, the first thing you have to do is make sure that the rest of the world is aware of what is going on because no one holds Biden down and says, hang on a second, you're lifting sanctions on Iran because you're allowing China to build strategic military assets. If people were honest about that, there might be far less support for Biden's actions to begin with. The second thing we have to do is not allow China to have possession of Australian military and strategic assets for free, like our islands and the Whitsundays and our, our ports. Um, and the second thing we have to do is make sure that we're not signing any of these Belt and Road Initiative projects with China, as Daniel Andrews tried to do, and as the federal government has also sort of had a little bit of flirtation with. And the third thing would be that the UN is complicit in helping China to do these things in the third world and to hold the third world to ransom so that it can get around environmental catastrophes of its own creation. And so now there's no more uh, way of voting democratically against China's debt trapping at the UN. It's time leaders did what Trump did and pull out and say, we can't have any more of our money if you're just going to tick off on these projects. Is there enough awareness, do you think, among the pollies in Washington and Canberra uh, about this and the risk? Well, I found releasing these articles online that there's more awareness inside the Indian community who write to me, who are over in India saying, we're aware of this, we know what's going on because of course they're the ones on the borders with these countries and they know how dangerous China's projects are to them. But in the Western world, there seems to be a, a lack of interest in calling China out for what it's up to. And either that's to protect financial investments of our politicians and their, and their friends, or it's an unwillingness to realize that we are on the verge of conflict with China. It's sort of like the beginning of the 1900s where we don't actually want to admit that we're in trouble. Well, the US protectorate line that, that, they, that China sort of um, detests, which is, you know, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, and then the Philippines, and then us, more or less, and New Zealand, um, that, that Pacific line um, I mean, the only weak point in there, I think, is the Philippines. And, and we saw a Duterte, a President Duterte agreeing to have some of that BRI stuff being built. There's a lot of projects being funded by China now in the Philippines. Uh, but there's been enormous pushback in the Philippines because it's a you know, former U.S. sort of colony. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're a pretty advanced nation on one level. And, and I guess they are very aware and skeptical of what... Uh, China is up to. So I think they'd pull back a little bit. Um, and the US is, is, is probably, uh, you know, returning as the Philippines preferred partner. There, are there any other gaps in that, in that little wall we've got going on there that um, could be a problem? Well, strangely, Australia is the most dangerous gap in Pacific protection because we have a, an enormous coastline which is largely uninhabited. And we don't have the military capacity to protect it. Papua New, is Papua New Guinea a risk? Obviously. Yeah, of course. But the problem with Australia is because we don't have lots of people there, there's almost no resistance. So we would be relying um, on America to come in and stop any Chinese warships creating their naval bases and securing the northern parts of Australia. Now, what bothers me is I've had, uh, well, I've asked Sharma this question um, at one of the conventions that uh, the Liberal Party had, and they are fully depending on India to rescue Australia in the Pacific. So the reason that this article matters and the points that are made in this article about India being caged by China's Belt and Road is because Australia is placing all of its faith in India's ability to protect Australia. Now, there's no doubt that India 
wants to protect Australia. That's not in question. It's whether or not China has now ringed India in, in sort of steel so they cannot move to help us if anything was to go wrong in the Pacific. Well, we need to just keep working on building the quad, which is our alliance with India and the United States, and, and just, you know, keep keep that going and moving. We're going to have to get a lot smarter and, as you say, a lot more educated. I really implore everybody to read your article in The Spectator Australia. Um, and Ellie, just keep keep doing the work, keep, keep investigating, keep writing. You're amazing uh, the way you produce this stuff, and nobody's really paying you on a other than a freelance basis. Um, so, you know, if, if anybody out there wants to support Ellie's work and her writing, you can tell us tell us how to do that, Ellie. Uh, you guys can shout me a coffee over at Kofi. There's a link in my Twitter, which is at Ellie Melly. And uh, it all goes to help supporting uh, a writer. I've also got merch coming out, like my ABC Go Fund Yourself mugs. The links are also in my Twitter account. <laughs> i got to get one of those. <laughs> I want one of those. Um, so that's Kofi, K-O-F-I, right? Kofi.com? The link is on my blog, my writing okay. blog. Got to go to the blog. And you're at Ellie Melly on Twitter, of course. E-L-L-Y-M-E-L-L-Y. Alexandra Marshall, thanks very much for joining us for the first time on video on the other side of Australia. Thank you. You're watching and listening to The Other Side Australia with Damien Curry, your weekly summary of Australia's best news and commentary from a sensible centre-right perspective. We head to Florida for the Best of America's 2021 Conservative Political Action Conference next. If you haven't already subscribed to Discernible, our platform, you can do so by joining the Discernible crew at Discernible, that's Discernible with an A, B-L-E, dot I-O, dot I-O. You can also subscribe on YouTube and Facebook. We need your support to help spread the word about all our shows. And also subscribe on The Good Source, another great platform for conservative thinkers and views. If you're a podcast listener more than a watcher, we're on Apple and Spotify and most other good podcast platforms too. Just look for The Other Side Australia to subscribe there. And you can always follow me on Twitter at dcoury. The American Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, which is held each year to bring all of the US's top conservative organizations and politicians and media types together for a powwow, happened this week. And the star presenter this year, none other than Donald Trump. As we gather this week, we're in the middle of a historic struggle for America's future, America's culture, and America's institutions borders, and most cherished principles. Our security, our prosperity, and our very identity as Americans is at stake, like perhaps at no other time. So no matter how much the Washington establishment and the powerful special interests may want to silence us, let there be no doubt we will be victorious and America will be stronger and greater than ever before. In just one short month, we have gone from America first to America last. You think about it, right? America last. What the Biden administration is doing to push young migrants into the hands of human traffickers and coyotes is dangerous, immoral, and indefensible. Hard to believe it's happening. Biden has failed in his number one duty as chief executive 
enforcing America's laws. This alone should be reason enough for Democrats to suffer withering losses in the midterms and to lose the White House decisively four years from now. Actually, as you know, they just lost the White House, but it's one of those things. But who knows? Who knows? I may even decide to beat them for a third time, okay? Beat them for a third time. He's back. President Trump made it very clear, though, that he would not be setting up a new political party. And I want you to know that I'm going to continue to fight right by your side. We will do what we've done right from the beginning, which is to win. We're not starting new parties. You know, they kept saying, he's going to start a brand new party. We have the Republican Party. It's going to unite and be stronger than ever before. I am not starting a new party. That was fake news. Fake news, no. Wouldn't that be brilliant? Let's start a new party and let's divide our vote so that you can never win. No, we're not interested in that. And President Trump reminded people of the drive and determination it took to get the vaccine program through the bureaucracy. I handed the new administration what everyone is now calling a modern-day medical miracle. Some say it's the greatest thing to happen in hundreds of years, hundreds of years. Two vaccines produced in record time with numerous others on the way, including the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that was approved just yesterday. It would have taken any other president at least five years and we got it done in nine months. Everyone says five years, so five years. I pushed the FDA like they have never been pushed before. They told me that loud and clear. They have never been pushed like I pushed them. I didn't like them at all. But once we got it done, I said, I now love you very much. What the Trump administration has done with vaccines has in many respects perhaps saved large portions of the world. We also put up billions and billions of dollars, 10 billion, to produce the vaccines before we knew they were going to work. It was called a calculated bet or a calculated risk. We took a risk because if we didn't do that, you still wouldn't have the vaccines. You wouldn't have them for a long time. So, in fact, the director of National Institutes of Health, Francis Collins, He's Fauci's boss, actually. I think he's a Democrat, too, by the way. Recently said that our Operation Warp Speed was absolutely breathtaking and that the Trump administration deserves full credit. And as conservatives and Republicans, never 
forget that we did it. Never let them take the credit, because they don't deserve the credit. By the time I left that magnificent house at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, almost 20 million Americans had already been vaccinated. 1.5 million doses were administered on my final day alone. 1.5 million in a day. Yet Biden said just a few days ago that when he got here, meaning the White House, there was no vaccine. He said, there's no vaccine. Oh, good. Say it again, Joe. Now, I don't think he said that, frankly, in a malicious way. I really don't. I actually believe he said that because he didn't really know what the hell was happening. Former U.S. President Donald Trump speaking at CPAC this week. For our liberalism education section this week, I want to stay at CPAC. Apart from President Trump, there was one standout speech. South Dakota Governor Christy Nome. South Dakota didn't shut its state down because of COVID. South Dakota treats its citizens as adults. Governor Nome articulated the priorities of conservatism and classical liberalism beautifully. I'm here today to share some of the lessons from my state. I think the main question that needs to be answered this weekend is, why does America need conservatives? Now, the question of why America needs conservatives can be answered by just mentioning one single year, and that year is 2020. Now, everybody knows that almost overnight, we went from a roaring economy to a tragic nationwide shutdown. By the beginning of 2020, President Trump had created 7 million new American jobs. We had the lowest unemployment rate in over half a century, and unemployment rates for black, Hispanic, and Asian Americans reached the lowest levels in history. More than 10 million people had been lifted out of poverty and out of welfare, and all of that changed in March. Now, most governors shut down their states. What followed was record unemployment, businesses closed, most schools were shuttered, and communities suffered. And the U.S. economy came to an immediate halt. Now, let me be clear. COVID didn't crush the economy. Government crushed the economy. And then, just as quickly, government turned around and held itself out as the savior. And frankly, the Treasury Department can't print money fast enough to keep up with Congress's wish list. But not everyone has followed this path. For those of you who don't know, South Dakota is the only state in America that never ordered a single business or church to close. We never instituted a shelter-in-place order. We never mandated that people wear masks. We never even defined what an essential business is, because I don't believe the governors have the authority to tell you that your business isn't essential. 
Wow. I wish we had just one state leader like that in Australia that treats people as mature adults. Now in South Dakota, I provided all of the information that we had to our people. And then I trusted them to make the best decisions for themselves, for their families, and in turn their communities. We never focused on the case numbers. Instead, we kept our eye on hospital capacity. Now, Dr. Fauci, he told me that on my worst day, I'd have 10,000 patients in the hospital. On our worst day, we had a little over 600. Now, I don't, I don't know if you agree with me, but Dr. Fauci is wrong a lot. Even in a pandemic, public health policy needs to take into account people's economic and social well-being. Daily needs still need to be met. People need to keep a roof over their heads. They need to feed their families. And they still need purpose. They need their dignity. Now, my administration resisted the call for virus control at the expense of everything else. We looked at the science, the data, and the facts, and then we took a balanced approach. Truthfully, I never thought that the decisions that I was making were going to be unique. I thought that there would be more who would follow basic conservative principles, but I guess I was wrong. Ask yourself this question. How far will people go to enforce mask mandates? Once you start lockdowns, how long can you sustain them? In South Dakota, we had some cases in March and April, but the virus didn't really hit the Midwest until late fall. Should we have kept people in their homes from March onward? Of course not. You know, it's important to ask these questions. We have to show people how arbitrary these restrictions are. And the coercion, the force, and the anti-liberty steps that governments take to enforce them. Often, the enforcement isn't based on facts. Justifying these mitigation efforts has been anything but scientific. Now, many in the media, they criticized South Dakota's approach. They labeled me as ill-informed, that I was reckless, and even a denier. Some even claimed that South Dakota was as bad as it gets anywhere in the world when it comes to COVID-19. That is a lie. Governor Nome then went on to explain how the media vilified her and praised governors like New York's Andrew Cuomo, who ordered COVID patients into nursing homes and refused to send them to the naval hospital ship that was sent by President Trump. Cuomo is now under investigation accused of significantly undercounting the number of COVID deaths in nursing homes and accused of trying to cover it up. This next cut from the speech is very long, but I just can't edit it down. It's too good. So we're going to skip our comedy segment today and sign off on this. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to subscribe, like and share, and please tell your friends about the show. Here's Governor Christy Nome. Our founding fathers established our national constitution, and the people of individual states crafted their own constitutions that place specific limits on the role of government. Those limits are essential to preventing government officials from trampling on people's rights. The people themselves are primarily responsible for their own health, 
and their well-being. They are the ones who with entrusted with expansive freedoms, the free will to exercise their rights to work, worship, and to earn a living. No governor should ever dictate to their people which activities are officially approved or are not approved. And no governor... No governor should ever arrest, ticket, or fine people for exercising their freedoms. <laughs> Governors and members of Congress and the President have a duty to respect the rights of the people who elected them. But it seems these days that conservatives are the only ones who know what that means. Personal responsibility is considered a God-given gift in South Dakota. Personal responsibility is not a term that conservatives have abandoned. When I was preparing to come speak with you, I came across some fascinating remarks that were made back in 1962. Listen to this. The Declaration, above all else, was a document not of rhetoric, but of bold decision. The Declaration unleashed not merely a revolution against the British, but a revolution in human affairs. This doctrine of national independence shook the globe, and it remains the most powerful force anywhere in the world today. That's fantastic, right? Those are the words of Democrat President John F. Kennedy. Is there any wonder why Ronald Reagan often said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party, it left me? There was a time, there was a time when both political parties clung to certain fundamental principles. But today, we seem not to even share the most basic ideals. America needs people who will stand up for these fundamental principles. America needs conservatives. It's easy to look back on 2020 and remember all of the issues that we had with COVID. But COVID is only one piece of a very problematic, problematic puzzle. It certainly showed us how deep the divide really is and how thin the barrier is between freedom in tyranny. But there was a worse movement that was happening in 2020, and it's an ongoing problem. Across America these last several months, we watched an organized, coordinated campaign to remove and eliminate all references to our nation's founding and many other parts of our history. Rather than looking to the past to help improve our future, some are trying to wipe away the lessons of history, lessons that we should be teaching to our children and to our grandchildren. Now, this approach focuses exclusively on our forefathers' flaws, and it fails to capitalize on the opportunity to learn from their virtues. And they had many of those. By discrediting the individuals who formed America's founding principles, they create doubt. And then they can remake America into a very different political image. It is our job to help explain why this is wrong. Remember, America wasn't founded for the personal gain or personal power of men like Washington, Adams, and Jefferson. The signers of the Declaration of Independence put their lives and their sacred honor on the line, and they affirmed people's God-given freedoms. Still today, the Declaration of Independence is one of the most important statements of purpose ever written, and not just because it serves as the justification for our independence to the entire world, but also because it has led to our prosperity and it's inspired many other nations and peoples to seek freedom. We the people, 
We the people have consented to a government that will serve all of us equally, a government that will protect and uphold our God-given rights, as well as the fundamental rights enumerated by our Constitution. It is our duty to renew our commitment to these ideals and to pass them on to those who come after us. These ideals cannot be dismissed as the opinions of flawed men. Our founders had their flaws, certainly. But to use those flaws to condemn their ideals and the greatest constitution that the world has ever seen is both unjust and it's self-defeating. How many of us can even live up to our own ideals? Without the words, the beliefs, and the sacrifices of those few, the world would not have a ringing example of true freedom. To attempt to cancel the founding generation is an attempt to cancel our own freedoms. Let's always remember, America is good. Freedom is better than tyranny. We are unique. We are exceptional. And no American should ever, ever apologize for that. We should illustrate to the world that people thrive when government is limited, and people's ingenuity and their creativity is unleashed. We should also remind the world what happens when tyranny and oppression are allowed to thrive. These days, too many are embracing China, a nation that crushes freedom of speech and religion. China literally places religious minorities in internment camps. China responded to the COVID virus by trying to cover it up. And one of their mitigation strategies was to weld doors shut to lock families in their homes. Friends of China are not friends of freedom. Make no mistake, America's leadership is needed in the world. So now let's have a really candid conversation. Everyone in this room and those listening at home, they know that America needs leaders right now. Those leaders need wisdom. They need the confidence to stand up for our principles and a will to act. Those leaders need to be conservative. We have a lot of work to do in the coming months. What may have worked in the past is not good enough anymore. It's not enough to say vote for us because your pocketbook will be bigger, or because we'll cut your taxes and reduce the regulations, or because we'll fight against abortion or Obamacare or whatever else. I'm not saying that these things aren't important. They are among the pillars of what we believe. But conservatives must lead the nation away from borrowing against our children's future. We must put an end to the accounting gimmicks used to deceive people. Joe Biden has been in politics for 50 years. At that time, our national debt was roughly $450 billion. Today, that's pretty close to what we pay in interest on our national debt. Everyone is to blame. We have forgotten principles that we once held dear. And we must more closely articulate to the American people that we are the only ones who respect them as human beings. That we are the only ones who believe the American people have God-given rights. We are not here to tell you how to live your life, how to treat you like a child or a criminal because you go to church or you defend yourself. Conservatives respect people as individuals. We don't divide people based on their religion, their culture, or the color of their skin. We don't shun people 
who think for themselves. And we understand that every single person is different. Each person, each person deserves the opportunity to build his or her life without some self-important government bureaucrat telling them what they can or what they can't do. We don't have the media on our side. Conservatives must be smarter than progressives. We must know our history. We must know what works and what doesn't work. We must think through the issues and make no mistake about it, conservatives exist to fight for America and for every single American. Now for those of you who are disappointed about the election, I am too. Remember, incredible innovation, though, it took place after Goldwater's 1964 landslide loss. It took the creation of many institutions, including the American Conservative Union, the National Right to Life, the Heritage Foundation, the Manhattan Institute, Concerned Women for America, the Federalist Society, Family Research Council, and among others, it took many to change hearts and to change minds. It was institutions like these that helped to bring about the Reagan Revolution and bring American exceptionalism back. Their work is more important today than ever before. So what can you do right now? It's really simple. You can be bold. You can show up. Debate these ideas. Persuade your neighbors. This pandemic illustrated that many politicians have a totally different vision for government than what the founders laid out. It was once said that the left takes its vision seriously, more seriously than it takes the rights of other people. They want to be our shepherds, but that requires us to be the sheep. Let it be heard loud and clear from us right now. We will not be sheep.